In episode 45 of MobyCast, we discuss Lambda layers, the runtime API, and how to make serverless more modular. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. Hey, welcome, Chris and Rich. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, hey guys. Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. So, Rich, yeah, what have you been up to this week? Oh, it feels a little bit like the quiet before the storm. I have a lot of travel coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, just the way that everything has found itself into my calendar, all of the stuff that needs to happen is happening while I'm gone. So I'm trying to get things done. But, you know, <laughs> you, you know when you're in the, that space where it's like you wish you could do something, but you can't because you're sort of blocked and you know that by the time that everything's going to be ready for you, you're going to be blocked again by travel. So yeah, that's trying right. to like get stuff done, but I feel really like challenged. Are you at least going somewhere cool? Or are you going to like Nyad, the Isle of Nyaz or something? I don't know what that is and probably not that cool, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to Mount Baker to shred. It'll be my first two days on the mountain too. Oh, nice. With some buddies that I knew from back in the days at Vail who are from right. So that's going to be great. And then a couple of days later, I go to a conference in Philly. Then a couple of days later, I have a, a mastermind conference in Beaver Creek. So a lot, a lot of stuff happening, and then of course a lot of deadlines right around there too. Of course, of course. What about you, Chris? What are you up to? Yeah, I'm just getting trying to get back into the swing of things after after all the holidays and whatnot. So um, there's a fresh year, just lots of new things to to look at and kind of doing some goal setting and whatnot, and then. You know, it's also when everyone else gets back. So the the plate's pretty pretty full this this uh this past week and just dealing with a lot of just busy with just day to day getting back into the swing of things. Right. Yeah, and Kelsis in general has tends to have busy Januaries because we we have clients that like to show off stuff at big big <laughs> trade shows and conferences. Just a shameless self-plug. We just built something for Sphero. That's their Spectrums, the app for their Spectrums new offering that's kind of making a splash at CES. And I'm, I just couldn't be more proud of the team for putting that together and seeing, you know, TechCrunch and Engadget and CNET all covering it and, and, you know, talking about it as one of the most interesting things they're seeing at CES is super gratifying. So I love it. So today we're going to talk about serverless made more modular. I love, I love, so Chris names these and I love how he said more modular because he didn't, he didn't just come out and say serverless made modular. It's more modular. So we're going to talk about Lambda layers and the runtime API. And basically this is kind of digging back into the pool of content that we picked up from reInvent. One of the things we love to do on this is just to really talk through some of the, some of the more complex or interesting sessions that we go to at conferences and bring them to you in a way that's digestible and in a way that gives us a chance to mystery science theater 3000 it a little bit. So yeah, let's, let's start and give us a little bit of an introduction and, and tell us about how you came to this, this particular session and what it was all about, Chris. Yeah. So definitely, you know, at this, this past reInvent, it was loud and clear that serverless is is really important, obviously, and, and it's something that AWS continues to make big investments on and improving. And we've we've talked about serverless in the past on on MobyCast and have done some episodes on it. You know, we always, I, for me, I, I always like to come back to like, well, what does serverless mean? And I think a lot of people, serverless means just Lambda. 
And it's, it's really a larger term than that. It's basically just, if you're not managing the actual infrastructure, then we can call that serverless. So things like DynamoDB fall into the space or Aurora serverless, so, uh, even things like SQS, right, can, it can be considered to be serverless. So it was really interesting at, at Remit just to see like AWS already has this, this huge catalog and serve, you know, suite of services for allowing folks to do serverless, but yet they continue to innovate in that space and they still have a lot of work to do. So on the Thursday keynote session with, with Warner Vogels, that's where they kind of did a lot of these announcements around serverless. And, and it turns out a lot of this was around Lambda this year. So they made quite a few improvements there, ranging from announcing Firecracker, which is their new micro VM technology for spinning up essentially containers or small VMs, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, but just very, very quickly and, and be able to, to handle lots of these things. So they use that now as like the core platform for Lambda for spinning up your, your Lambda functions. There were other improvements announced related to like just capabilities with Lambda and like increasing like timeouts from five minutes to 15 minutes and some other things that people have may have had some some issues with in the past. So it's getting more mature. And so two of the, the more interesting ones that they announced were Lambda layers and the Lambda runtime API. And these are kind of like two new foundational pieces to it that really kind of open up the, the the programming model and make it much more flexible. So they announced that at Warner's keynote on Thursday. So after that, whenever they do make announcements for, for new products or services, obviously they want to keep those hidden and, and keep them secret until the announcement's made. So they're they may have sessions planned for it, but they're not going to put those sessions into the catalog until after they've been announced. And so me personally, I'm looking at my my Friday calendar and there's not a lot of content on, on Friday's calendar. Uh, it's the last day of the, the conference and they're kind of winding down. They've gone from five venues to, to two venues and just a reduced number of, of sessions. And I, I wasn't able to reserve anything. So I was kind of wondering, like, what am I going to, what am I going to do? It but, is Vegas. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Although after, you know, after five days of Vegas, <laughs> it's, it's more like, instead of like saying it, it is Vegas, it's like more, it's like, oh, it is Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but I was very, very happy after, so after Werner's keynote, check the app for updates to the catalog. And, and yeah, of course there was, there was new sessions added based upon the announcement. So one of them was a session on specifically on layers and the runtime API. And so I immediately snagged that, reserved that, and was was super happy. I also reserved one for the the cloud map service that was announced as well. So I got to go to two really cool sessions on Friday. And so what we'll talk about today is just kind of breaking down what was discussed during that session about the new layers feature and the runtime API for Lambda. Before we talk about that, just kind of a, another anecdote to that was, again, given that Friday's the last day of the conference, they're, they're, they went from five venues to two, like there's probably like a fourth of the content available now, or maybe like a fifth. So a lot less sessions available on Friday. And I think, you know, the expectation is, well, there's going to be less people. People are going home early. There's also, you have the big party the night before Thursday night replay, people partying late. So they're probably not going to want to get up and, and go, go to a session. 
And it turns out like that didn't happen at all. I was really surprised to see, you know, bright and early, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock people were in the wait list lines and it was just jammed with people trying to get into these sessions. So I was really lucky to have gotten reservations for both of this, for, for these two, these two sessions that I was, but there were a lot of uh, unhappy people grumbling, especially mm-hmm. for this layers one because the layers one was over at the Bellagio and it was actually held as uh, in one of the chalk talk rooms. Mm-hmm. And so it's this tiny, tiny room, <laughs> 70, 70 chairs. Right. And when I, so AWS Twitter has been nonstop talking about Lambda layers since it was announced. So you would have thought, you would have thought that AWS would have had more, more sense. Like this is going to be a big, interesting session that everyone's going to want to know more about. So I'm surprised too. But yeah. I mean, it's no doubt. I mean, like, I mean, if you had kind of put together a list of like, what are the most interesting sessions at reInvent, like this is going to make the top 25 list out of the sure. thousand, the, the thousand, thousand sessions, right? Yeah. Like very broad spectrum uh, appeal. Lots of people are going to be interested in this. Like this should have been, in a, you know, this could have accommodated easily a thousand people. And instead it was this, you know, this tiny room with 70 chairs. And so I, I was breathing easy because I had my reservation. So I'm getting in. But the, the line of people waiting on the wait list was easily 500 people, maybe more. And then you had you had a few people there that were kind of just like screaming up and down the line saying, be aware, you know, warning, like that room is only big enough for 70 people. And you could tell like the people on the wait list are like, do I believe them or not? Like, <laughs> just, you know, like, <laughs> what do I do here? And they were right. I mean, it was, it was a very, very tiny room. There was, it even slowed down the start of the session because the, you know, the presenter was, he wanted as many people in there as he could get. And he, you know, he, mm-hmm. he saw all these folks that were interested in his talk and, and he wanted it in there. So he's trying to negotiate with <laughs> the folks that are running the, the, the room there. Like, Hey, can we like just put them against the wall or something? And they're like, Nope, not going to do it. And so there was, it was interesting to see this back and forth negotiation for about five minutes before it was like, okay, no, it's not going to happen. If there's not a chair, there's not a person. So get going. Um, right. Yeah, I was just thinking about the power of those people like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and like it, it was it was kind of interesting to see like the, the negotiation back and forth, but like it just wasn't going to happen. So sending out, you know, long story short, super fortunate that I got into it. And it turned out it was definitely it was a great session. It was jam packed with content. This the, the presenter, I will try to get his name pronounced, uh, Danilo Pochia. And he's a principal evangelist in the serverless group there at AWS. And he did a just a, a wonderful job. Lots of lots of good content, but um also gave a lot of really great practical tips. So we'll we'll dive into that a little bit here and just break the break down that session. Cool. Yeah. So it, and this was specifically it was SRV three seventy five in case people are trying to find it on the internet, because it may some of them are on there. Yeah, and this is, you know, if you are interested and want to get the full session, it's the video recording of the session is on the YouTube channel, on the AWS YouTube channel. Okay. And then they've also published the slides for this as well on the SlideShare. So I'm sure we can have links in the, the show notes here to for, for both those, but they are available. Great. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Yeah. So Danilo started off first just talking about, you know, his two main pieces here, Lambda Layers and Runtime API. So first went into to Lambda Layers. 
So we can talk a little bit about, you know, what, what they are and, you know, why they're useful. So, you know, I'm sure most people know Lambda, it's a, a function invocation platform. So it's a way for you to, you basically have some, some code, it's packaged up as a function, you upload it as, as a zip file to the Lambda service, and then you have something that triggers the, the execution of that. And so then when it gets executed, it's now reading in your code that you'd uploaded that it's executing that, that function entry point which again can it can call you know other functions and and whatnot but the gist is is you're you've you've packaged up your code as a zip file you've you've uploaded to lambda it's now invoking that on demand executing it and then the results are returned back to it and so some of the challenges that come with that are you know if you have a very simple function like in javascript with with no dependencies then you know, it's pretty, pretty simple to go ahead and do that. But, you know, what if you want to run code that uses, you know, five other packages, or it has these other dependencies that have to come along with it? It's, you know, it could be that instead of just one file, you need 500 files that are all that zipped up and, and sent up to Lambda, you need that, that's the runtime support that you need for it. It gets even more complicated, right, if you actually have binary dependencies. So, if the code that you are running, maybe it has some packages that are for various reasons, maybe performance or, or other reasons. My favorite one is Image Magic for this example. Sure. Yeah. Image Magic, you know, great one. So the Image Magic, you know, C code, there's going to be bindings there to go from your dynamic language to Image Magic, you know, so whether you're calling it from JavaScript or Python or whatnot, there's going to be some compilation that needs to happen in order for those bindings to to work. So, you know, there's some additional work that you have to do as a developer to to get that to get that compilation done and then zipped up and that becomes part of your zip package, right, that you upload to to Lambda. So, up until now, it's been a very, you know, isolated process where you have to kind of do the exact same thing every time across all your functions and across all your teams are kind of having to do the same thing, right? There's no way to really kind of share or to build on maybe these dependencies that you have. And so that's that's exactly what layers allows you to do. It really is just a layer of files that you can stack on top of your whatever runtime you're using. And you can you can have up to five of these these layers. So however many layers make sense to you, but you can kind of think of it as just it's it's it, it, they're really useful for sharing dependencies for if you're doing some some more complicated packaging again dealing with things like binaries or whatnot. You can do that once and store the results of that in essentially a layer. You just have to do it once, and now you can have that as a reference, and then you can now, whatever's now different about the particular function or the particular code that you're doing, you can just reference that as like a reusable component, if you will. I don't. I just want to make that more explicit with an example, and I, I don't know for sure if this is a correct example, but I'm going to try it, and we'll, we'll talk about it. So going back to my image magic example, I can imagine you having a function that lets you upload an image and stores it somewhere. But on the way to storing it, it's got to do something with that image, maybe crop it or maybe downsize it or whatever. And that's something that Image Magic could do. And then it goes and stores it somewhere, S3 maybe. And then another function that goes and gets images 
custom fit to a certain size. Like maybe that all have to be square and they've got to be, you know, 600 by 600 pixels or something. And so that function is going to grab the image out of S3, run image magic on it to crop it just right, and then return it to the user or return it to the caller. And I'm thinking that that would be an opportunity where you could create a layer that has some code that some code in your, you know, language of choice, maybe it's Node, maybe it's Ruby, that talks to image magic and uses it to do the job that it needs to do. And that code would be used across both of those functions for both the, the create of the image and the get of the image. And so if you could put that code into a layer, you wouldn't have to put it into both of those packages. Is that a good example? Yeah, so, I mean, so you, you know, in this particular case, having a layer just with image magic. And maybe a little bit of like, you know, interface code between your like Sure, yeah. I mean, you, you may you may have like a, a common library mm-hmm. that kind of has an abstraction that's built on top of image magic. For right, right, right. When it invokes it and, and you know, executes a, a certain API and, and gets back the results or, or whatnot. Right. Um, so that whole thing might be like a good candidate as a, as a layer because it's probably pretty, again, pretty complicated to put. There's a build process associated with it, right? You have to go and make sure that you're building that code essentially on an, an AMI that is the same that, that Lambda uses, right? Like you can't compile your code on your Mac and then upload it to, to Lambda. Not going to work very well. So there's work associated with that. And so if you do that as a layer, it's now a reusable component that you don't have to worry about anymore. So now you can just focus on what's different. So now you have that one layer with, with this shared library that provides the interface into your image magic functions. And now you don't need to worry about that anymore. It just it's going to be there for that function, so the function can just make the call into that shared library, and it doesn't have to be part of its layer. It just right. it's part of the, the the previous layer that was put in there. So that, that's a that's a great example for when this really really shines. I think it's fair to say. I mean, just talking that through, I think it's fair to say that without some additional help, there's more heavy lifting involved in doing that than there would be in say you know, making image magic a dependency in maybe your express app and just having a whole app that provides both the create and the get features, you know, APIs. So even though we get layers now and that layers help us not have to do all the all the dependencies for each Lambda function, it's still technically, it's just like less work to build an application than it is to build a whole system one function at a time inside Lambda. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, right? yeah I mean, like, I think, I mean, you're, we've touched on this in the past too when we talked about serverless is that it, it, it's definitely, it's a, it's a different model. You have to structure your code differently. You have to think about it differently. And so everything changes, right? Like CI and CD change the way that mm-hmm. you test these things, the way that you build these things, the way that you package them, the way that you deploy them, the way that you invoke them. I mean, it's it is quite different, which makes it actually a lot more difficult to adopt something like this than even something like containers, right? Mm-hmm. To go from from VMs to containers, your whole programming model doesn't have to change, right? I mean, some of your process stuff is going to change, but it doesn't require I mean, it's the mental shift there is something that you can you can probably assimilate within a few a few days and then refine it from there versus serverless kind of really makes you think about things quite a bit different and yeah i mean i even though it's been out like lambda itself was announced was was launched in 2014 i believe you know so it's it's been around now for four plus years 
I mean, it's it's not like this robust, mature platform, right? There's still a lot of work to be done. Just like we're just now getting layers, <laughs> right, right, right. And and we're gonna we'll talk about more about like this actually opens up a whole bunch of other holes that like AWS has not yet addressed, and you know they'll need to at some point. So, so I bring that up largely because I'm just imagining there may be some people listening. You may be out there listening and saying, you know, I've I have every plan, and you know, our CTO or I'm the VP of technology or whatever it is, I have the plan to build our application on serverless, and I'm going to go for it. And Layers is going to make it easier for me. And I will say that you know, it, it's technically there's more things that have to happen. One thing we haven't talked about is just that as part of doing this, there are some tools out there. The one that I'm familiar with now is called the Serverless Framework. And the serverless framework, what it does is basically lets you treat your local system. So, you know, wherever you're doing your development, it lets you treat where the files are on that as kind of your framework for application development. And then it, it's able to translate that into, okay, well, these files are here. Those files are there. These files, and, you know, I've got a little YAML to tell me where everything's supposed to go. I can pretend like this is an application, like like a classic application, like an express application or something. But in reality, I'm going to go do a ton of cloud formation work to go deploy these behind the scenes that you don't have to really deal with. So the development process can actually feel a lot like it does currently for for you know regular applications. And I do think it's worth you know taking a look at those. I think I think that they've done a great job of making Lambda development feel like you know express Node.js development. So worth worth taking a look at but but know that underneath all of that a lot of stuff is happening and whenever there's a lot of stuff happening there's a lot of places where things can go wrong and you have to learn and be able to troubleshoot etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah abs- uh, yeah absolutely so there and, and like you point out i mean there's there's definitely some some great tools for developers for developing there's uh, i think sam Lo- it used to be called sam local i think it's now sam cli is it, it might be the, the same thing that you're referencing with the the framework. Mm-hmm. So definitely, and and you can run Lambda locally, right? So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. right. Essentially, if you're if you're developing a lot of serverless stuff and you're in the console, like clicking around in there, you're probably doing it wrong. Like it, there's better tools than that. Yes, absolutely. And I think going back to your original point, like layers, layers don't actually make like serverless easier. Right. They just they make it better and more modular and allows you to use some of the engineering techniques that you're used to, but it doesn't actually make anything easier per se. Right. I think uh, the best example of making it more modular is just you know, now I've got to go change something that that's sort of a dependency. Oh, and look these 11 functions use that dependency. Well, now you get to not have to go change those 11 functions. You can change your one layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about just the layers themselves and how they're created, how you use them. Okay. Some things to keep in mind when using them and, and, and whatnot. So layers are really kind of no different than the way that you kind of currently use Lambda functions. So you're, you're basically packaging up a set of files into a zip file. That zip file is your layer and you upload it to, to Lambda and now it's available to be referenced by a Lambda function. And so Lambda functions can can reference up to five layers and you specify the order in which those layers are, are installed. 
So something to to keep in, keep in mind with these layers is that layers don't have no knowledge of other layers. So you can't build on top of a layer. Hmm. So re- I think a really good analogy to this would be like would be Docker images. And so Docker, you know, has the concept of a base image, and then you can extend from that base image, right? And then from there, keep adding packages and features, right? Or, or even delete from it, right? And then and then just going from there. With layers, you could do that, but you'd have to do it all manually. You'd have to manage it yourself. Because again, at the end of the day, all it really is is a zip file. And what Lambda is going to do is Lambda is going to unzip that zip file into a very specific path. They're all going to be extracted to the same. Every layer that you use is going to be extracted to the same path. And so you need to make sure you have you understand what these layers are doing and the coordination between them because you know if they can override each other, right? So if you... If you have a conflict between two different layers where one has this version of the file and the other one has that version of the file, it's going to come down to, to order of extraction based upon what how you listed the, the order with your um, when you reference these layers in your Lambda function on, you know, last right wins. So it's just it's something to be aware of and something just to you're just going to have to keep track of that yourself. And so you, you probably can come up with, you know, with your own internal process where to create the layers themselves, you can kind of do a, an inheritance type approach where you you have a, a base layer, if you will, and then you can then add to it. But you would have to provide the, the tooling and the, the process for kind of that's how you build your zip files. You said something that made me picture something that I want to try to say and, and see if it feels right. So if I'm developing a, a regular old app, not a Lambda function, but just like a, say Express or Ruby on Rails or Sinatra or something, I may have a folder in there that's like, you know, database objects. And maybe in there, there's stuff that talks to the data that kind of translates between the database and, and the code. And that stuff may be used by lots of different controllers, let's say. And those those things would reference those database objects via just the path that they're in. That you know, if you import them, you just have to be like, you know, dot slash database objects and then the name of the file. Like that's how you talk to those other files from your code. And the way it all works is just by the virtue of the fact that the files are where they're supposed to be on the file system. And what it sounded like you were saying to me is that. Layers essentially works the same way. I'm just going to unzip this and dump the files wherever, you know, dump the files here. And that's sort of an agreed agreed upon convention that I I know where I can access those files. Like maybe there's a folder called slash layers or something. So I know I can say like layers dot whatever or, you know, import layers slash whatever. Is it kind of that way, like where I can just where I just pretend like the stuff in my layer is like uh, just stuff in a folder that I can import from my code? Because the other way of, of doing this would be like, oh, it creates a shared library and that shared library is a binary and then you can talk to it through some some other sort of code mechanism. But to me, it's sounding like you're you're saying it's just code that you can call and import into your into your current file or class or whatever you're working on module. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it really. I mean, in a way, like the it's not too terribly advanced. That's what I'm trying to help people understand is like this is just pouring the files into somewhere where you know where they are. And it's doing that for every function. And another way of thinking of this is that like in the past, it was if you have a Lambda function, you upload a zip file. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's it's one and only one zip file. Mm -hmm. Now with layers are just saying, you know what, you can do this in up to up to six zip files. 
Mm-hmm. And we're like just functions can see those can see some of the you know up to five of those zip files they, without you having to upload them again. And and again, all it's really doing is it's just Lambda just says, okay, go pull in the zip file, extract it to this directory. Mm-hmm. Is there another one? Pull in the zip file, extract it to the directory. So Lambda doesn't care, and you it's like you can do whatever you want with it, right? Like you could have like each zip file is mutually exclusive and it's talking to different parts of the file system. It could be that they're all talking to the same path and overriding, but it's it gives you a way of packaging things into reusable components. Mm-hmm. But the underlying technology, it really is just like zip file, extract, mm-hmm. zip file, extract. And then um, to talk to the layer is the same way of talking to code that you're already used to. I think that's the part that I'm getting at that that's maybe sort of subtle is like when you learn a programming language and you want to go access some functionality from a class or module or something that's in another file, you typically have to do something like import it into the current file that you're working in. And what I'm trying to help people see is like, that's all Lambda Layers is providing for you. It's like you can picture it as though it's your same actual computer and like you can access those other files just the same way you normally would. You don't have to, that's that's what I'm, it's also kind of a question, right? There's no magic you have to do. You just, those those things are available for no, you. In fact, in in fact, your, your Lambda function that, you know, when you have your Lambda function, you specify, oh, it uses these layers. That's the only linking between it. Your Lambda code is just going to expect that those files are there, right? Okay. You're not going to see anything in your, like you won't necessarily see specific, like I'm going to inherit or I'm going to import or whatnot. You would just do do it the way that you would normally. So I guess a, a good example would be like, so like if you have a node, if you're writing a program in Node.js and maybe, you know, you're using NPM to manage some dependencies. And let's just say like for for whatever reasons, you have like just a common set of, of dependencies that you use for your node apps and so maybe it's a list of 20 dependencies. So you have, that's part of your base, like your, you know, your, your underlying layer that you create. So you, you have, mm-hmm. you have a, a package JSON file with 20 dependencies in it. You NPM install, that ends up becoming, you package that as a layer, you upload it. Now you have your Lambda function and maybe it has to use Lodash or something like that. But Lodash is in the common layer that you just created. So in that code, like you may have a package JSON to list like some other two or three dependencies that it uses, but you won't see Lodash. Yet the code itself will be able to basically just require Lodash kind of like automagically and because it's going to be there on the file system as if it had been installed by NPM because you did that in the in the previous zip file layer. So, okay. so it's kind of, again, it requires you to, you have to keep track of like what, what are actually in your layers? Like, what are you expecting to be there? And, and so in that sense, it's a little brittle, right? Mm-hmm. You have, cause you have to manage that and, you know, maybe something else to along these lines of the, of the brittleness is that, you know, you can, you can change layers, right? You can, you can version them. So you can say, okay, I, you know, this particular layer, like maybe some dependencies have been updated. I'm going to go ahead and create a new version of it. So now I have version two of the layer, but maybe you have like 500 Lambda functions and those 500 Lambda functions use the V1 version of it. So what do you do now? And so you can delete the old version, but if, as long as there's other Lambda functions that are referenced in it, it's still going to be kept around. You just won't be able to use it for any new functions. It won't show up in the list of available layers, but it's still being held in the background. So you, so you start running into these just management issues of like, 
some questions like, well, how do I know what Lambda functions are used in the old layer? Like there's no easy way to, to figure that out right now. Like that's a missing piece. Again, this is something that you're just going to have to like just deal with yourself and figure it out. So I that's a really interesting thing, though. Like I was just thinking about, well, what does happen when you update a layer? And I think in my first mental model that I created of layers, when I was trying to think of it as super, super easy, I was imagining that even though you have this shared code, that whatever behind the scenes in Lambda is managing this is literally pouring out the layers into each and every one of your functions. You just get to treat it as though it's one thing. But now when I think about updates, I realize that whoever implemented Lambda is probably not wanting to go do 500 updates on 500 different Lambda you know, instances. So maybe they do something more like use, using EFS or something to basically say, hey, this is where your layer lives, you know, Firecracker VM. So now I can go change that underneath the under the covers and oh, voila, you've got a new version without right. having to do it 500 times. Yeah, I mean, layers are just a file, right? Yep. And so they're, they're probably stored in S3, almost guarantee it. They're, they're stored in S3 and they are associated with, they, they get an ARN, right? And this mm-hmm. is how you, you, you reference them by their ARN. So yeah, so from that sense, like there's no correlation between the running functions and that like what Lambda is doing is just saying, okay, I need to go and create a sandbox for this for this function. Does it have layers? Yes, it does. Okay, what are those ARNs? Look up the ARNs, figure out where they are, go get the retrieve the zip file, extract it to the directory. Now I can go do the same thing for the Lambda function itself and then go and execute it. And as long as it can find that ARN and do that, that's that's what it's going to do. So it's and that ARN is tied to that whatever version it was when you whatever you specified for that function. So when you go and create a new version of your layer, for as far as Lambda is concerned, it's it's just another ARN. It's just another resource, and it's not tied together to the other one. It's and, right. and that, that's this that's what this problem is, right? That's why you can't. It's not going to automatically update your functions. And, and and you probably don't want that either, right? Right, yeah. If you have a long-running function, it's in the middle of running. You don't want it, the world to change underneath it in the middle of running. Yeah, um, and then you also may not want to push out, like, for various reasons. Like, some functions, they may very well be able to handle a new version, but other ones, maybe they, they would break. Right, um, right. Right, so... So yeah, so there, it's definitely probably without a, a richer ecosystem, it's it's the the right thing to do. But it just it puts more of the burden on you, and is something that you're just going to have to manage. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. Maybe another limit just to be aware of is that so layer the storage space with that is applied towards the same per region limit for Lambda function storage space. So that's 75 gigabytes. So that means the the total storage space for your zip files that you've uploaded for all your Lambda functions and all the layers themselves can exceed 75 gigabytes per region. Okay. So something to, to keep in mind there. Easy um, enough to just create a Lambda function that creates a new AWS account and then moves the storage into the new account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's really the workaround, right? It's like if, you, if, if 75 gigs ends up being something... You need more than that, then you're, you're going to have to create layers in either other regions or, and, or just probably even easier, just other accounts. Right, right. The maybe some other things we can talk about with layers are permissions. And so, again, at the end of the day, layers 
they get an ARN, they use IAM for permissions and security. And so you can use the layers within a within an AWS account. You can share layers between accounts, or you can also have layers that are publicly shared. So they're open to the world, which is, you know, it's kind of the beginnings of the the potential for like a layer marketplace, if you will, right? Yeah. But it doesn't, there's no, this is another thing that's kind of missing, right? Like there's no infrastructure to support that. So if you do have a layer that you want to make public and you want to share it with the community, you have to publish the ARN for it, right? And people have to know what the ARN is. And that's the only way that they can see that, right? There's no repository for layers, right? There's no marketplace. So I've got my VC on the phone, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, man, it's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure AWS will build, will build something, but you know, who knows when that will, will show up, but this is definitely something that is is sorely needed right now. AWS did announce they they have started that they've kickstarted that they've they have a an official pre built optimized public layer that they're publishing that will be available to the community and that is that layer includes the NumPy and the SciPy packages. So Ooh. so popular packages use like with Python to do machine learning, data science type stuff. It's they're usually difficult packages to not difficult. It's just they they require work to set up, install, compile, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. now there's a layer that has that, so you don't have to to deal with that. So if you're using NumPy or SciPy and your Lambda, it's now super simple to get going with that. You just mm-hmm. reference that that public ARN for that layer in your Lambda code. I love the fact that they're optimized too. Like you just know it's going to scream on AWS because mm-hmm. they optimized it for you. Yeah, indeed. And then, you know, we've kind of already talked about just the mechanics of building a layer. It, it's really the same the same process as what it is to, to make a Lambda function. So you just, you have your files, you do whatever you need to, to build those files and artifacts. And then when you're done, you, you zip it up and then you go to, you can go to the Lambda console or you can use the new, there's new APIs, AWS APIs for doing this for creating that layer, registering it with with Lambda and, you know, uploading that zip file. So pretty simple, pretty straightforward, pretty expected. And cool. that, that is layers. So after that, the second half of that talk was all about the runtime API. The runtime API, this is what opens up the flexibility for Lambda so that you can now start, it gives you the ability to have any language supported in, in Lambda. So up until this point before this was announced, there were certain runtimes that were supported by Lambda and you had to have, you had to use one of those, right? So right. Python, Java, Node.js, the notable Go. lack that everybody everybody was complaining about was Ruby, which is kind of funny because of all the you know developer communities out there. I think the Ruby one was most interested in Lambda and, and serverless with Lambda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they that was one of the announcements that they made that Warner made. And this Thursday keynote is that now Ruby is officially supported as Lambda execution environment, and they actually did that via the runtime API. Right. But mm-hmm. it's 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 just baked in now. Right. So now you're able to choose Ruby as your runtime environment for your Lambda function. You don't have to you don't you don't have to build a runtime. API. You don't have to build a custom mm-hmm. runtime for it. You, mm-hmm. it's, it's directly in the platform. But this runtime API, it's it's a very kind of simple, straightforward interface that 
gives you the the capability for building whatever kind of runtime you want and run it in Lambda. So if you want to run COBOL code, you can do that. If you want to run Rust or if you want to do Scala or Erlang, you know, whatever, or PHP, right? All these just opens up any kind of language that you want to do. And it sounds complicated. Like there's something about the way they named it or just the fact that it's AWS or something that just makes you feel like, ooh, that's hardcore. Mm -hmm. But the reality is you already know how to install those languages on your computer or on your virtual machine. And now we also know that Lambda is running its stuff on Firecracker, which is a little mini VM. So if you imagine, how can I make it so this little micro mini VM can run a new programming language? If you were able to just log into it and wanted to do that, you would know exactly what to do. So from that perspective, it's like, oh, this isn't rocket science. This is just installing, you know, essentially like a, you know, a language's interpreter or compiler or whatever, you know, runtime system onto that micro VM. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big part of it, right? Is the whatever runtime support that particular environment needs. And then, you know, the the other part of this is like, okay, how do you integrate in with Lambda? And then that's the whole runtime API, right? So you, there needs to be this interface between Lambda and your custom runtime so that they can basically do the the back and forth, the handshaking, right? So there's a, there's a certain sequence of uh, flow events that happens. So like, you know, the first step is, you know, an event comes in, have to do things like get the tracing ID. There's great in context associated with that. Then you actually invoke the function. And then after that, you have to handle the response and handle any errors, do the cleanup and, and, and hand that back to Lambda, right? So there's this back and forth flow coordination between the Lambda platform and the the runtime environment. Right, right. That's yeah. that's the bulk of the work here, right? Is, you know, it's one thing to go and basically install PHP. You got to do that and you got to make sure that that's, that's the way that you, you know, it's it's optimized and it's installed correctly and, and, and whatnot. But now you have to provide that, that interface that Lambda knows how to call you and, and you're implementing that interface that it's expecting. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And, you know, it's, I think the, the first half of that loop is probably the easier part of, you know, handing off a, a request and, and invoking, you know, having the function run probably the more difficult part, depending on your, whatever runtime you're supporting is, you know, making sure that you're actually handling all the error cases. How do you trap those errors and the response and making sure that that all gets caught correctly, packaged up, and then sent back into to Lambda, right? Mm-hmm. That's That can get trickier. So, I mean, just think about languages like Node.js and just the way that it handles errors and, you know, how do you catch uncaught exceptions and everything else. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, but it's also, it's not like just, you know... Yeah, super, super I think, simple it, I think it, it's right? so. a great little example. You brought up Node.js, and, and one of the things that's kind of weird about Node.js and Lambda is like, you can return an error or you can throw an error and like Lambda knows how to handle that. And I think whoever implemented Lambda's node capabilities had to make a decision. Okay, what am I, I going to do with a thrown exception versus a returned error? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for any language you implement with the runtime API, you've got to think about that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody's going to do that, right? Like any language you want is probably already there. Like already there was like COBOL and Ruby and PHP. And then, you know, since then I've seen announcements around Rust 
list. Pascal, I think I've seen Lisp. Mm -hmm. So unless you're implementing your own, and that could be the case, you know, like maybe Salesforce has has its own proprietary language and maybe they want to put some stuff on Lambda. They could do that for their own proprietary language, Apex. Mm-hmm. So, or if you're a, a big company with your own language and you want to use Lambda for it, you can do it. Yeah, there's been a lot of good work already been done by other other folks in this space. So, like, if you want to run C plus plus and Lambda or C, that exists now. There's that custom runtime has been built. Same Rust, Cobol, PHP. Yeah, and it's, it's just it's just growing. So, but I guess the the important takeaway is that the runtime API has enabled that, and so. Now it's just whatever language you want to do, Lambda in, you, you can do that. Cool. Yeah. And then maybe just to, to finish up, there was a couple, you know, again, mentioned that Dana led, you know, again, great session, did a good job pre- presenting a lot of content pretty quickly and concisely, and then also kind of sprinkled it with some some tips and things. So just wanted to follow up with a few pro tips that, you know, came to light during the talk that I thought was kind of interesting. So, and they're all kind of really around Lambda, having Lambda functions and, and, and whatnot, but it may be things that people are not necessarily aware of. So, you know, one thing, one thing that was kind of interesting is that, so when Lambda runs, your functions runs, it's, it's, it has a sandbox that, that, that runs in, right? So, I mean, for, let's just keep it super simplistic and just kind of like pretend it's like a VM that's spun up, right? That your, your code is, is, is running in. Lambda then gets the option of deciding on whether or not to keep that sandbox or to tear it down or to assign your function to another one, right? So there are a lot of scenarios where your function repeated calls are going to be running on that same sandbox. So that means that, you know, if you've written to slash temp, whatever you wrote to that on the previous function call, like that's going to still be there, assuming that you're still running on the same sandbox. So this is a, a technique that you can use. Like if you wanted to use, if you wanted to have a very quick very easy, quick way of caching stuff. You can use slash temp in the file system for your Lambda functions as a cache. But just realize like it could be pulled out underneath of you at any at any time. So you, you definitely want to have a way of rebuilding or not relying on that being there. But you can take advantage of the fact when it is there. That's cool. And similarly, same thing goes for global objects. So if you have global objects in your Lambda function, they will persist between invocations as long as that your Lambda function is running on that same sandbox. Oh, God, I hope somebody's in the middle of like a two-week bug (laughs) tracking down session and hears this and is like, oh, my God, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so to uh, kind of like those ephemeral issues to, to keep in mind about just how it actually works underneath the covers. And then a practical tip, Daniel kind of suggested, you know, two to three layers at most. Don't use the full five. You know, there is a performance cost of this is sequential, right? So when your function is invoked and you have a a, a list of layers, it has to do that. It's going to do that sequentially and it's going to do it serially, right? It's not going to be done in parallel. It's going to be done serially. So it has to extract the first layer, wait for that to be done. And then only then and only then will it go and extract the next one. And then like until it's until it actually gets to your function and it extracts that one and then it's done and ready to go. So wait, seriously, so so you your function gets invoked and it's gotta unzip as many as five files in order to even invoke your function? If you have five layers associated with that function, oh, yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That so, can I mean, take a long time. 
Well, it, it's, you know, it, it's up to you. I mean, you know, it's really just, you know, how long does it take to, it depends on how big your zip file is. Like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it could take in the order files. of seconds, I'm imagining. It could perhaps. Yeah. So definitely, you know, it's, you definitely want to keep in mind. I mean, you know, it is true that, you know, usually once that sandbox is initiated, as long as it's being regularly invoked, like the odds are good that you're not going to have that startup time again, because uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be to be able to reuse sandboxes. But you know, again, no guarantee. So I literally saw today on a Slack that I'm on, somebody was asking that exact question. He was like, yeah, I'm doing this toy function running Lambda and I'm trying to get rid of the spin up time that's going on. Does anyone have a good low mental overhead suggestion? And, uh, you know, the answers were kind of like, yeah, you can kind of do some stuff, but it would be better if you just, if that's a problem for you, it'd be better to not use Lambda. Mm-hmm. I, did, I mean, you know, the, or just, you know, make your Lambda function simpler. So like, this is why a lot of yep. times, like if you're, if you're, if that's a kind of a concern or issue, like usually Java as your Lambda function in, environment is susceptible to this versus you know, other languages. And it's not necessarily because Java is slower, yep. but it's just typically Java, the way that it lays out its code and with class pass and whatnot, yep. it ends up, there's just lots of files, right? And right. it's, and it's just, it's a bigger zip file. Yeah, and these so, people were, were saying, you know, if you're on Node, we've seen Python's a little faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, something like Go is, like, if you're really concerned for performance, something like Go is probably a really great choice. It's mm-hmm. it's compiled, and it's definitely lower level, much le- much smaller in file size as well. So Right. And then some people were also saying, and this is, I love reading this, actually, some people were saying, you know, uh, the next simplest thing, if you've got kind of one function that you need, need to get done, we're seeing, we're liking moving, moving these to ECS tasks when they're not fast enough for us on Lambda. Yeah. I mean, it, it just depends on like what it is that you're doing and how often it's being invoked. So, you know, we, you know we've, we've talked about ECS quite a bit in the past on this, on this podcast, you can have things that are constantly running. You could have things that are, I mean, you can easily invoke them based upon events and just having a task do one and done. You can have scheduled tasks. Right. And I'm just, it's, I'm just guessing it would be quicker to spin up a, an image and run a function on it than it would be to unzip a bunch of files and then run a function on it. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends. I think like theoretically, Lambda has the potential to be faster if you package it right. And if you do things like, I mean, you may have to do some warming. Um, yeah. As soon as you get into warming though, it's like, Oh my God, I'm working or I'm working against the tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's some, that's one of those things where I don't, I don't think there's like a clear cut answer to say like it's Lambda versus ECS. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, Lambda has Firecracker now and, you know, ECS doesn't. And it's going to be a while before ECS gets that. Although Fargate will probably be the the first one that, that gets it. Oh, so, but to explain my reasoning, like the reason I was thinking a cold start on ECS might be faster than on Lambda is because today I learned that, you know, you get the firecracker thing spun up and then you have to wait for the any layers or other things to get unzipped and sort of laid out into the firecracker. And then now I can execute it. Whereas mm-hmm. I think with the Docker image, you just spin it up and go like the file, everything you need in the Docker image is there and ready to be used. Yeah. I mean, in, in both cases, you have to have the, the VM and then you're now bringing up your execution environment. So, you know, on ECS side, that's your your image and create creating that container within that VM on ECS versus, and, and that is just, it's already pre-built, right? Which is kind of what you're getting at versus yes. on the Lambda side, 
it's not uh, one file, one image pre-built, right? It is this file. It's basically a file system. Right, right. It's, right. it's a collection of files. Yeah. It's a file system. And yeah. again, you know, so if you have lots and lots of files, then it's going to take time to, you know, unzip those and to write them to disk. And if you have multiple files, then, of course, it's going to take even longer. So, you know, <laughs> potentially, it, again, it depends on, like, how big your zip files are, how many of them you're using, you know, right, how right. long does that take? And, you know, does... The, the the two platforms like what's the what's the trade-off between them so i would it would definitely be one of just looking into the specifics of it and see you know if you're on lambda and it's not working as well for you as you want like are there easy things that you can do maybe you're doing some things that are you really shouldn't be doing and you can make that run better or it could just be like what you're trying to do like you know what you really should package this up into a docker image and run it as a container you're going to be right and have an ongoing service or something yeah sorry for Diving so deep on that, I just, you know, if we have any listeners left, that for me was the biggest thing I learned today. It's just like the, I, for some reason, I thought that Lambda functions were just like, kind of like images, like turn on the image and go. And mm-hmm. I, that day I learned that they, they've got a little work to do before they're ready to, ready to rock. It's just a collection of files. It's a file yeah. system. It's all it is. Yeah. Right. It's like a USB stick. Yeah, I know. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. And thanks for putting this together, Rich. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash four five. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.